Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Back when the shutdown, isn't it interesting the terms we're using now, the shutdown? Everybody everybody for the next generation is going to know, oh, you're talking about 2020, right? It's like around here when somebody says blizzard, everybody says, oh, 1993. I mean, it just, it, we're all triggered by, by that. And so you say shutdown and people are going to automatically think, oh, you're talking about the, the year 2020, the, the year that wouldn't end. Um, but when the shutdown first began back in March, my, my wife... Um, uh, got us hooked on one of these meal delivery services. You've probably seen these type of things, like Blue Apron is one of them, and, and I don't know, there's several of them, but, but she got us hooked on this thing and, and thought, hey, this is a great idea to, to kind of help supplement, make sure that there's, there's some meals in the house so we don't have to go to the grocery store. If you remember going to the grocery store back in March and April, it was a it was kind of a you know hit or miss. You didn't know what was going to be in stock or what was out of stock. This company doesn't deliver toilet paper. It was only food, so so you still had to deal with with that. Um, but it was a pretty good, pretty cool thing. Uh, every Friday, FedEx or UPS would bring this box to our front porch, and this box would contain everything that you needed in it to prepare the meals that you had subscribed to, and. Uh, I was like, well, that's, that's impressive. I mean, perishable things, non-perishable things, everything was in this box. And, well, I'm kind of into the logistics of things. I don't want to know just that there's a box on my porch. I want to know how that box got there and how in the world that they were able to get perishable items on my front porch when this thing, I guess, shipped from Texas. So I'm, I'm very curious when the first box arrives, what's going to be inside the box to make sure that, uh, that whatever, whatever items are in there are kept at a, at a reasonable temperature. And so we open the box, and, and what you find is this pretty innovative shipping process. Inside is this kind of a disposable cardboard cooler. And inside this disposable cardboard cooler is, are these two massive packs of, of some sort of gelatinous frozen stuff. Uh, it, it said it was non-toxic, but I didn't taste it, so I don't know. Um, but then in between these two frozen packs, you have all the stuff in the box that needs to be kept cold. And these things are frozen solid. And so you open the box, and you get this whoosh of cold air that comes out of the box, and all the items in there are, are fresh and ready to go. It was a pretty neat deal. Well, we've kept the service going because, uh, honestly, the food's been pretty good. Uh, so, but we've kept it going, and uh, the last couple weeks, though, they've ran into some logistics problems. The, they had to swap from UPS to FedEx, and, and the last couple weeks, the box didn't show up on Friday. And so, well, what's going on here? Well, the box shows up on Monday. Well, you can imagine that this innovative shipping process sort of kind of starts to fall apart when the box is sitting in a FedEx warehouse in Atlanta all weekend uh, in 90-degree summertime days. And so this past week, we got the box and opened it up, and everything in it was room temperature at best. And you're talking about raw chicken and raw beef and all kind of raw pork and all sandwiched together with fresh vegetables. And I just didn't feel highly motivated to try to eat this stuff. And so we had to call and work out something else. But it, it was interesting that the ice in the box, these gel things, would, would preserve the food. And as long as those things were intact and they were frozen, the food was preserved, it wasn't ruined. 
The, the presence or absence of the ice was the determining factor of how well the food kept. Without those ice packs, there wasn't a whole lot keeping the food from spoiling. I'd wonder how many FedEx drivers uh, don't get them there on Monday and they show up on Tuesday and they start to, start to smell some interesting things coming from their boxes. In our text today, Jesus doesn't mention ice. It wasn't an everyday commodity in ancient Israel. But he does talk about two things that have a critical role in preserving and protecting. As we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, we've left the list of the Beatitudes. The blessed are the poor in spirit. We've left that. We're not going to be talking about the, the blessings, per se, of kingdom living in the sense of the way, the way the Beatitudes are worded. But we don't need to miss the importance of the Beatitudes, the influence of the Beatitudes on the rest of the sermon. Any sermon, the introduction sort of, sort of sets the table for what the rest of the sermon's going to be about, and Jesus sets this model for us. And so the Beatitudes set the table for us. It, it lets us know kind of where we're going in the sermon. And so the Beatitudes aren't left there at the beginning of the chapter just all to themselves. They influence the rest of the conversation that we have. It's no secret that when we looked at the Beatitudes that, that they are mostly internal spiritual dynamics. Uh, the rest of the sermon, however, should remind us that if we are living out these kingdom-centered ideas that are presented to us in the Beatitudes, that they're going to be external realities in our life as well. And we need to begin with this thought. A church that is characterized by, this is not a real word, but I've coined it for the sermon. So, so if you're looking it up, you're not going to find it. But a church that is characterized by beatitudinal living is going to make an impact on the world around it. A church that is characterized by beatitudinal living is going to make an impact on the world around it. It's that impact that Jesus moves us to in the next phase of the Sermon on the Mount. And so this morning I want us to look at two pictures that Jesus paints for his followers. This morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 5 again, but we're going to move on to verse 13. As we get ready to dive into this call to be salt and light, we need to be wary of the temptation here to kind of gloss over these words. If you've caught yourself, I do this from time to time, when, when a very familiar phrase or very familiar passage of Scripture is being referenced, you may find yourself, oh, I know this, and just gloss over it, skip past it. I, I've read this before. I know what this says, and, and move past it. But we need to make sure that we don't do that. We've heard sermons on salt and light. But in spite of their familiarity, let us hear them this morning with fresh words, especially in light of the world in which we live forever known as 2020. So if you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5, I would invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how is its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and, and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the call on the church to be salt and to be light. May you bless our conversation in that regard today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When we consider salt, Jesus instructs us that we are the salt of the earth. We understand that in this day, in Jesus' time, salt wasn't about taste. Salt wasn't a spice as much as it was a preservative. Salt has the basic function of being a preservative. Now, again, this is in a world that is pre-refrigeration. And again, it's a, it's a hard world to imagine a world in which there was no form of refrigeration where, where you couldn't have, we had to go a, a week without air conditioning, which is just refrigeration for human beings, right? Uh, so so to, have a, to, to be in a world where there is no refrigeration is, is really foreign to us. And of course, there are parts of the world today that exist without refrigeration. And, uh, but for us in the first world, it's hard to imagine that. But in that world in which Jesus lived, the only way you could keep meat from rotting was to cure it with salt. And, and for us today, that's almost a novelty. You go to the grocery store in the meat department, and there's that, there's that rack that's, that's close to the meat department, but it's by itself, and it's got all kind of the salt-cured products in it. And, and if, you're, if you're shopping there, the, the likelihood is in this area, you're buying something to put in a pot of beans, right? Because that's what those salt-cured meats are for today. They, they season the, 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 the beans that you've got on the stove. But when Jesus says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, he is making a statement about their ongoing role in the preservation of civilization and culture. D.A. Carson explains it this way. He says, implicitly, Jesus is saying that apart from his disciples, the world turns ever rotten. Christians have the effect of delaying moral and spiritual putrefaction. I quoted him just because I wanted to say the word putrefaction from the pulpit. If their lives conform to the norms of verses 3 through 12, the Beatitudes, they cannot help but be an influence for good in society. The Beatitudinal church will be salt in a godless society. Now you think about our culture today, and we understand that, that God has put measures in place to maintain order and stability in our culture. Uh, beyond just the church, for instance, government is one of those measures that God has put into place to provide stability. Uh, government, when it functions within its God-ordained role, is supposed to punish evil and reward good, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. That's its God-ordained function. However, we can certainly see that government maybe is getting a little bit confused in today's day and time. Uh, and, and notice where the confusion has stemmed from. As government grows more and more secular, when there are fewer and fewer Christians, quote-unquote, in the room, we find that government has a harder and harder time getting this right. Take, for example, our current Supreme Court. Sometimes they get things right. Sometimes we look at the cases they rule on and we think they were way off on that one. 
But if you look at the religious makeup of the Supreme Court, it's interesting to note that there has not been an evangelical Christian on the Supreme Court since 1971. What does that mean? You're saying, preacher, there's no Christians on the Supreme Court. It's not what I said. I can't judge their heart. But what I can do is say I know what church they're affiliated with and what religious background they have, and I can say that there's not been an evangelical Christian on the court since 1971. That means that we've not had a, a Supreme Court justice who affirms the inerrancy of the Word of God since 1971. We shouldn't be surprised to find that they don't get it right every single time. It shouldn't surprise us when we look at governments around the world who have some of the most horrific human rights violations. If you look at those governments, they are completely secular and godless. The family is another preserving grace that God has given to us. But we have to ask the question, how are we doing with the family nowadays? Again, if you watch the family breakdown, you're going to watch the civilization follow in that regard. If you look in our communities and neighborhoods, the demographics where the family is in the greatest trouble, you'll also find that those are the demographics where there is the greatest unrest and upheaval. Again, we see those preserving systems beginning to fail. So if government is struggling and families are struggling, that only leaves the only other institution that God has put in place, and that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a beatitudinal church will function to preserve society. But what happens when that church is no longer functioning with biblical fidelity and gospel faithfulness? You see, salt can only be not salt when it is diluted. Jesus said this, you were the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, it's hard to imagine salt being unsalty, right? It's hard for you to look at your kitchen counter or the salt shaker and imagine that that, that white crystal substance in your salt shaker that's called, uh, that's called table salt, it's hard to imagine that stuff not being salty. But you don't have to have a chemistry major to understand that, that sodium chloride is one of the more stable compounds on your kitchen counter. I can honestly say that I've never gone into my kitchen once and seen the salt shaker sitting on the counter and said, I hope that thing stays put. I've never looked at it and said, I hope that thing doesn't start heating up and shaking and cause an explosion. I've never considered that at all. I've even mixed it with the, the black substance that's beside the salt shaker, and I've mixed those two compounds together, and I've never gotten a, a violent chemical reaction out of the table salt on my counter. In fact, you could take your salt in a laboratory with distilled water, you could dilute your salt in that distilled water, and in, in a controlled environment, you could evaporate all the water, and you would be left with what? Table salt. It's, it's really quite interesting. I'm sure that you can probably search on YouTube and find something interesting to do with table salt. However, uh, by itself, in a salt shaker, your salt, it's not going anywhere. Salt, though, only loses its saltiness when it is diluted by other compounds. In Jesus' day, there weren't technologically advanced refineries where salt could be 
manufactured in mass. He couldn't go buy him a box of Mortons at the, at the store down the street. That, that wasn't a possibility. Uh, so it was very easy in Jesus' day for salt to be contaminated with things like sand and dirt. And if that was the case, dirty salt, you wouldn't want to rub dirty salt into, your, uh, into the meat that you had just collected from the, the cow that you had slaughtered. It, dirty salt wasn't really fit for anything except to be tossed out into the road where it was to be tread on underfoot. Some biblical scholars have suggested that what was then popularly called salt was in fact a, a white powder harvested from around the Dead Sea that certainly contained sodium chloride, table salt. But it also contained other stuff, since in those days there were no refineries. Uh, they say that of this dust, the sodium chloride was probably the most soluble com component. And so the most, it was also the most easily washed out. The residue of white powder still looked like salt and was doubtlessly still called salt, but it neither tasted nor acted like salt. It had a very technical term simply known as road dust. And so Jesus has in mind a, a very clear picture of salt that has lost its saltiness. Jesus' metaphor should begin to creep in a little bit closer to home, however, without a lot of interpretation. Jesus is making a very serious statement about the dangers of a church that has allowed the influence of the world to dilute her witness. Again, if we tie this beatitudinal living, when we, when we see how, how we don't live in accordance with Jesus' words and the beatitudes, how we can become unsalty salt. This leads me to ask a, a very unpopular question. And we're going to ask this question not to hurt our feelings, not to, not to make us mad, not to commit the, the terrible sin of 2020 of being offensive. But I do want to ask this question because it's one that's pertinent for us today. What if the moral confusion of our days is partly our fault? What if the moral confusion of our day is partly our fault. Here's the thing. A fallen world is a fallen world. It's going in one direction. But in God's grace, He has placed the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world as a preservative. We know, Romans 1 tells us the direction that a fallen world is going. If you want to know where it ends, go read Romans 1. It paints a very bleak picture of the direction fallen man is going in. But God has placed the preservative of the church in, a, in place in the society to slow the rot. John Stott said it this way. If we Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians... We are useless. We might as well be discarded like saltless salt, thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. The second metaphor that Jesus uses is light. You are the light 
of the world. Now, of course, we know Jesus is the light of the world, and we could certainly get into all sorts of interesting analogies about how we're to be the moon, and the moon reflects the light of the sun that shined upon it, but that's not really, Jesus wasn't trying to get into technical discussions here about that. He simply tells us that the church here is the light of the world. But in order to appreciate the metaphor, you, you've got to consider the role of light in a world where they didn't have the means to flip on a switch. I mean, how many times have you been in your home and the power's been out, and the first thing you do when you walk into a room is you reach over and you hit the switch on the wall? And then you know you've done it because when the power comes back on, what happens? Every light in the house is on because you've gone through and you flipped every switch on because that is your habit. That was not the case in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the sun went down. The only place that light would come from was the moon and whatever fire could be produced, whatever oil lamps and fires could produce. You know, there are fewer and fewer places in our world where artificial light doesn't dot our landscapes during the night. Uh, unless you're in the middle of North Korea, this satellite image, if you can't see it, uh, just you can Google North Korea satellite image and you, you'll be able to see this in lots of different forms. It's a stark photograph that shows the light of the nations around North Korea, but during the night over the communist nation of North Korea, light is hard to find. It would be interesting, to say the least, to be in a place where there was no light. Because the fact of the matter is that light is a precious thing in a very dark world. Light is a very precious blessing in a world that is cased in darkness. If that light is coming from a city, it's a welcome beacon on a dark night. If that light is coming from the, the flickering wick of an oil lamp, why would anybody want to cover that up? That's what Jesus says. Why would you light it and then, and then cover it up? That would be irrational. Again, we take this for granted. Uh, I, remember, I remember when I first learned that, that this thing had a flashlight on it. And I thought to myself, that's just silly. Why in the world would somebody put a flashlight on a phone? I'll never use a flashlight on my phone. And I dare say that the phone flashlight may be the most used application of the phone next to the phone or the text box, the text app itself. Uh, it, if you got these things on, these things turn into a flashlight. You can swipe up and hit a flashlight, and, and you're, if you've got a watch on that's a smart watch, it'll, it'll light a room up now. It's, it's crazy to think about how, how prevalent light is in our world today. It's, it's crazy to think that, that today, in 2020, if you need a flashlight, somebody says, anybody got a flashlight? And there's seven people who pull a phone out and say, here's, your, here's my flashlight. You go to a concert where, where you ought not go, right? You go to one of those concerts where they hold up, used to hold up cigarette lighters, right? Well, now it's the thing is to, is to hold up a cell phone light uh, because smoking's taboo, right? You don't do that anymore. So you hold up your, your cell phone light. This is an interesting world in which we live in that stands in, in worlds apart from the world in which Jesus is living. Imagine how our world would function if suddenly there were no electronic sources of light, if there were no light bulbs, no headlights on your car, no street lights, no brake lights, 
no lights other than what could be produced naturally. If you were suddenly thrust into that world, you would suddenly have a brand new appreciation for the tiny flicker of an oil lamp or a city in the distance after a long journey in the dark of night. Jesus reminds us that light is a blessing in a dark world. He also tells us, though, that we shine our light through our good works. Just like there is a clear distinction between an oil lamp and the darkness around it, there is a distinction between the Christian and the darkness that surrounds him. Jesus' call to be light means that wherever we are, we point people to the Savior by our words and by our deeds. He says that we are to, in the same way, let our light shine before others, that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. By our good works, we remind people who our allegiance is to. We remind people who our Savior is. By being light, we're also functioning as salt. D.A. Carson said this, Christians, lights of the world, refuse to rob their employers by being lazy on the job or to rob their employees by succumbing to greed and stinginess. They are the first to help a colleague in difficulty, the last to return a barbed reply. They honestly desire the advancement of the other's interest and honestly dislike smutty humor. Transparent in their honesty and genuine in their concern, they reject both the easy answer and the doctrinaire politician and the laissez-faire stance of the selfish secular man. Meek in personal demeanor, they are bold in righteous pursuits. That describes someone who is living as light in a dark world. Which raises the question this morning. If we were to look in a mirror, would we be blinded by the light that we shine? Or would it be too dim to matter? Jesus says you were the salt of the earth. You were the light of the world. When we take these two metaphors and don't treat them separately, but bring them together, there's a couple things that come to mind. The first one is this. The presence of salt and light is undeniable, but so is their absence. I present exhibit one, mashed potatoes. There may be no more disgusting substance on the planet than mashed potatoes without salt. If you've ever been on a low-sodium diet and you've had to try to stomach mashed potatoes without salt, that also means probably without butter, unless it's fake butter that's not got salt in it. I, I believe that I would rather eat Elmer's glue than eat mashed potatoes with no salt. Uh, if, uh, you know, and, and this has happened, I've made potatoes and forgot the salt, and you take a bite, and the first thing you do is you grab that super stable chemical compound off the table, and you, you add some salt to those things, and as soon as you salt those potatoes, they're not just palatable, they're delicious, right? I present exhibit two. Pick your cut of meat. Let's take that meat outside on a lovely August day and set it in the parking lot, one with salt and one without. Which one would you be more likely to consume after 
15 or 20 minutes of sitting in the sunshine? I think we know the answer. Exhibit 3 comes from the form of a story. Back about 20 years ago, I went on a trip with a youth group here at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We went on a wild cave expedition over at Raccoon Mountain. Was anybody in that? Did anybody go? There's some, some of y'all were in that. So went on a wild cave expedition over at Raccoon Mountain. That was the day that I learned that I am incredibly claustrophobic. They said, we're going to crawl through this gap that's we're going to have to army crawl through this gap that's about this deep and uh and all you can see are the bottom of the feet of the people in front of you you can't see to the it was awful it's horrifying um if if i'm on a crowded elevator and too many people get on i will get off uh just just know that but however we get into this large room in the cave and the god had everyone shut off their lights all forms of light he even asked us to cover up our indiglo watch faces some of you are like, what is that? Watches used to glow, uh, like they had this, this, this eerie alien green glow to them, and you had to cover up your indiglow watch face. And I remember sitting there, we sat in total darkness for about five minutes, and as our lights became accustomed to the total darkness, you still couldn't see anything, one tiny light was turned on. And you would have thought that a thousand-watt light bulb had been illuminated in that dark chamber. Because in total darkness... Light makes its presence very known. The point is this. If salt and light are present, then you can't miss it. However, if they are absent, you are guaranteed to notice that they are gone. For Christians who live in this world, our presence should be evident. Wherever our walk takes us, from the classroom to the boardroom, from the doctor's office to the baseball field, there ought to be a difference between those who follow and serve Jesus and those who do not, because you cannot hide the presence of salt inasmuch as you cannot hide the presence of light. There ought to be a difference. But secondly, we need to know this. Both salt and light must give of themselves in order to be used. When salt preserves a cut of meat or makes a pile of mashed potatoes taste better, that salt has given of itself to do so. It is to be consumed. Likewise, all natural, source, or all natural light sources are a diminishing resource. All the light bulbs in here, these are, these are these newfangled LED light bulbs, and they're supposed to last for tens of thousands of hours. Well, guess what? They will last tens of thousands of hours, and at some point in time, they won't come on anymore because they are constantly giving of themselves to produce light. Scientists tell us that even the greatest source of light that we have, which is making these windows stand out, the sun, that the sun is a, is a, is a large flashlight floating in the heavens, and that large flashlight is, is working it's consuming itself to give off light and heat. And though none of us will be alive to see the day that if the Lord chose to tarry and in, chose to let this happen, that at some point in time in the future, the sun will burn itself out because it will have exhausted all of its fuel. Salt and light must constantly give of themselves in order to impact the world. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 10 and 11 say this. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. You notice what he says, if you pour yourself out. But the Lord will guide you continually, will satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. 
You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. In spite of salt and light, as Christians giving ourselves out over and over and over again, it is the Lord who sustains us in that journey. Beatitudinal living creates Christians who embrace their call to be salt and light. In this world in which we live, where we can literally feel righteousness and justice and morality slipping away, I hear so many Christians lament that this day and time in which we live is frighteningly absent of a moral compass and, a, and just outcomes. It is the church and her call to be salt, preserving civilization. Her call to be light, pushing back darkness. It is the church who, in the power of Christ, must rekindle her gospel witness. And so as we look to whatever the rest of 2020 holds, may we embrace our call to preserve that which remains, and may we shine our light in such a way that darkness will have no domain. Would you pray with me, please? God, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful for the call on our lives to be salt and light. We pray that we will be a church that embraces that call, that we will be a church that celebrates our role as a preserving agent, as a, an agent that pushes back darkness. We pray, God, that as we seek to win the lost for Christ in this strange world in which we live, that we will remain faithful to you, faithful to the gospel witness, that we will keep our eyes fixed on you, and God, that we will be obedient to you. May we be salt, may we be salty salt, and may we be bright light, reflecting the light of our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.